Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Advent is upon us, and it's always a good time at the beginning of seasons like uh, Lent and Advent to basically reconsider uh, how we're doing. Uh, Are we making progress uh, in our spiritual life? Do we see ourselves uh, gaining victory over various types of temptation? Uh, Are we coming to a greater understanding of how to cultivate virtue? My guest, Dr. Bram Petrie, is well known from uh, books that we've discussed on this program before. He got his doctorate in New Testament uh, in ancient Judaism from the University of Notre Dame, and he's presently the Distinguished Research Professor of Scripture at the Augustine Institute. Uh, He's author of books uh, like we've discussed, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, and this magisterial volume, A Catholic Introduction to Scripture, the Old Testament, which he co-authored with Dr. John Bergsma. But Brandt has uh, given us a little bit different treat this time, uh, maybe more personal. It's called Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. And Brandt, it's good to have you with me. Thanks. Thanks for being. Thanks for having me back, Al. It's great to be with you. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the origin uh, of this book. Um, it's a little bit outside your u- usual uh, framework. Tell yeah. me, tell me about it. Well, it, it basically originated when um, a friend of mine sent me a bunch of books from his personal theological library, and several boxes of them were filled with works of spiritual theology, uh, like classics by St. Catherine of Siena, or St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila. And, and during my doctoral program, I hadn't really focused in that area at all. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really familiar with spiritual theology. And so when I started to read the spiritual classics, like John Clemicus' Ladder of Divine Ascent, or Thomas Kempis' Imitation of Christ, I was just really completely blown away by what I encountered in the writings of the mystics and the saints and the doctors of the spiritual life. And, and I remember just being transformed by what I was reading and wanting to share it with others. So I taught a class that semester, an elective at the college I was teaching at, on spiritual theology. But I did it from my own perspective, which is, of course, as a Scripture scholar, right? Mm-hmm. I looked at the biblical roots of what the saints were saying. Because one of the things I noticed, Al, that was interesting is, although you have these different streams of spiritual tradition, like especially in the West, right, like Carmelite spirituality and Ignatian spirituality, right, or Dominican spirituality, at the end of the day, they all had one common source, and that was not just the Scriptures in general, but in particular the the teachings of Christ, Mm -hmm. that Christ, Jesus himself, is the ultimate spiritual master. And so in this book, what I wanted to do was kind of take the wisdom of the saints, but show people that although there is this diversity, right, within the spiritual traditions of the Church, at the end of the day, the ultimate spiritual master is Christ. So in the book, what I do is I go through the major teachings that you'll find in the writings of the saints about the purgative way, which is the first stage of spiritual growth, and I show you where every one of them comes from, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the teachings of Jesus and the, and the New Testament as well. So this is uh, so th- this was was this br- all brand new to you when you started reading through this uh, these works of spiritual Yeah, theology? it really was. I got I got to be honest. I mean, I grew up. I'm a cradle Catholic, so I, I grew up in my basic idea of spiritual of, of spirituality was sure. you know saying your prayer. Right, right. right. Well, it was pretty much limited to vocal prayer and participation in the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And when I started to read about the absolute centrality of meditation, for example, in in, in the spiritual life, 
which, you know, Teresa Avila says it's a matter of life and death for all Christians to not just do vocal prayer, but to meditate on the Word of God. Yeah. That really was something I don't remember hearing as a child right. growing up in the right. Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, and yet the saints were all in agreement on it. Uh, and not just the saints, but the Scriptures as well. I mean, the first, very first psalm, Psalm 1, says, mm-hmm. Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord. Right. Not just, you know, every Lent or every Easter, but... <laughs> Day and night, right? That's it's right. a daily part of the spiritual path. So for me, that that was really transformative, and as I began to study about contemplative prayer, as well as also the teachings of Jesus and the saints on the vices and the virtues, especially the capital sins, you know, anger and avarice and lust and gluttony, and the opposing virtues, and practices like Lectio Divina. I just personally found it transformative, and so did my students, as we, as we shared about it in the classroom. So I, I knew back then, this was almost 20 years ago, that one day I would want to put all this together in a book. And so that's what I did in, yeah. in this introduction to the spiritual life. That's great. Uh, it's a great introduction, too. I'm enthusiastic about it. I, I'm always looking for you know materials that can be shared with people, and this is certainly a good one. Yeah. And uh, I should mention, too, Chris, yeah, that's Christmas I, is coming up, so it's, it's a good one to buy for Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, this book, I really did try to write it to where no matter where someone is in their own spiritual journey, whether they're literally just getting started in the life of prayer and the life of Christian, or if they're already well advanced along the path, but maybe they've read the writings of the saints and mystics, but they're not exactly sure, you know, where does John of the Cross get this idea of the dark night of the soul from? Or, Or where does Lexio Divina come from? Is that medieval idea, or does it actually go back to Scripture? So in this book, what I'm trying to do is take those standard concepts, like the battle of prayer or the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. or um, Lectio Divina, fasting, almsgiving, and show where are these in the Old Testament, where are they in the teaching of Jesus, and then what are some practical ways we can put them into practice uh, through the wisdom of the saints. Well, let's go over some of the distinctions you make uh, here, your first major realization about the three different kinds of prayer, vocal prayer, meditation, yeah. contemplation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I think most of us understand that vocal prayer is, you know, praying with words. Uh, it could be memorized. Yep. It could be spontaneous. Uh, meditation. How does meditation differ from contemplation? Oh, okay. This is a great question. Well, if you look at the scriptural use of the term meditation, it's really fascinating. Al. So, for example, I just mentioned um, Psalm one, right, which is one of the most explicit references. Yes to meditation in the mm-hmm. Old Testament. It says that the, the righteous man meditates on the law day and night. So the first aspect of meditation is different, is that it involves a prayerful reading of Scripture. So Scripture is very central to the kind of prayer that's called meditation. But it's fascinating, if you look at the Hebrew word for meditate, the word hagah, it literally means to sigh or to moan. Hmm. So it's not just reading the Word of God, it's sighing over the Word of God. It's like taking it into ourselves and yes. making it a part of us, pondering us, pondering it not just with the mind, but with the heart, right? So the, the ancient Greek translation of that same psalm will translate the word as melotao, and it means to think about, right? So um, meditation specifically involves loving the Lord, not just with our mouths through vocal prayer, through words, but with our minds. 
Okay. Okay. And yep. taking time to think about God, to think about His Word, uh, it, it really is honestly goes back to the greatest commandment in Judaism, which is the Shema, where Jesus is going to take that commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And He actually adds a line to the commandment. He says to love the Lord your God with all your mind. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Shema is given, you actually see that in context, the way Moses is telling the Israelites to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and strength, you you might ask, you know, how do I do that? Well, he says to write his word in your heart and to speak about it day and night, to ponder it in the morning and the evening, to talk about it with your children, to talk about it while you're on the way, when you rise and when you go to sleep. So this kind of... um, uh, rhythm of constantly reading and pondering the Word of God is an essential part of the spiritual life, not just for cloistered monks, not just for priests and for nuns, but already in the Old Testament, for the laity, for yeah. everyone. And, um, and, and Christ, of course, is going to continue that in his teaching to make that the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your mind. Because, look, think about it, Al. If we love someone, what do we do? We think about them. We, think we don't just them. Yeah. talk to them. We we think about them, right? Yeah. We, we we remember them. We dwell and, on and them. And by contrast, yeah. if yeah. You, we dwell on them. That's right. Mm. Uh, and by contrast, if we don't ever think about someone, the likelihood is that we don't probably love them all that much, right? So this is about cultivating the love of God by learning to love His Word. And then contemplation differs in what respect? Yeah, this is a great question. So if you look at contemplation or contemplative prayer in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, what you're going to see is, whereas meditation is, so to speak, focused on thinking about God, honoring God with the mind, uh, contemplative prayer is going to be more focused on encountering God with the heart. Hmm. And the metaphor that will frequently be used uh, for this is the image of the gaze. Of looking at God with, so to speak, the eyes of the heart, mm-hmm. a gaze of love that is fixed on the face of God, the invisible face of God. You see this especially in the Old Testament with the figure of Moses, right? So we tend to think of Moses primarily as the great lawgiver, right, or the great liberator, and he's certainly those things. But in Jewish tradition, Moses is also the greatest of the mystics, and the saints and spiritual classics describe him as a master of contemplative prayer, because it'll, it tells us, like in Exodus 33, that Moses would regularly uh, not just talk to God, but he would go into the inner tabernacle, into the tent of meeting, and there he used to speak to God, quote, face-to-face, yeah, yes, as yes. a man speaks to his friend. Yeah, now this, this image in Hebrew... So the word faith literally means panim, or literally is panim, and it, it doesn't just mean faith, it means presence, right? Like the bread of the presence is the bread of the panim, the bread of the face of God. And so contemplative prayer isn't, it's not so much about talking to God, about God, but about encountering God. It's the desire to see God face to face, which means requiring time, making time, to simply enter into his presence and be with God. I'm sure you know, you're familiar with that famous example of this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It talks about the peasant in the Curie of Ars, I think it was in uh, uh, that parish of St. John Vianney, who used to go and just sit before the yes. tabernacle, right? In the, in the, and he, and they, you know, his friends would ask him, what are you doing there for hours? You must, have, you must have a lot to talk to God about. And he describes his prayer very simply as, I look at him, and he looks at me. 
So that mutual gaze, that right. silent gaze of love, that's really, that's what Moses is doing in, in the Old Testament, and that's also what King David describes in the, in the Psalms, right, the desire to gaze upon the Lord in His temple, to seek the face of God, uh, to, to listen for God, to encounter God like Elijah does on the mountain in the silence, right? in the still, small voice, or the silent voice of God. So contemplative prayer is, in a sense, the kind of prayer that transcends words. Hmm. It even transcends thought. It really is a gift of that silent adoration of God. Brent Holt, that is very good. We'll come back, continue conversation. My guest, Dr. Brent Petrie. Sure. The book is Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. Uh, we'll come back and continue the conversation there's really uh, some outstanding uh, material here that will help uh, ground you and actually uh, increase your expectation for knowing God. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Brant Petrie, taking a look at his book, Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. Brent, you often hear people say, I don't think I'm making progress uh, in the spiritual life. I I confess the same sins, and I, I feel like it's just the same old thing over and over and over again. <laughs> Should people expect to make progress? Yes, according to Jesus, according to the saints, that absolutely is the case. Yeah, yeah. That, that, in other words, making progress is the norm. If you look at all the writings of the spiritual classics, they're going to say over and over again, that, you know, that the spiritual life or spirituality isn't just some kind of, you know, state of being or an idea. Right. It really is a path. It's, it's a way. Jesus calls it the hodos, the road. And w- whenever you're on a road, you're either moving forward or you're moving backward, right? <laughs> you, no one just sits on the side of a road, right, and does nothing, right? If they want to make any progress, they have to go forward. And so even the very image that Jesus uses to describe the, the, the path of discipleship, the teaching that he's giving his disciples, uh, presupposes that you're in motion. You're either going forward or you're going back. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but at least for me, I think a lot of people have had the experience of feeling like they're kind of, uh, maybe uh, spiritual life is more of a revolving door. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you're just going in circles rather than making progress. And I think part of the reason for that is a lot of times we have, a ver- we have very vague notions about what the spiritual path that Jesus gave his disciples actually entailed, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this book, what I was trying to do is highlight, isolate and highlight the basic elements of the spiritual teaching of Christ as the saints have highlighted them for beginners in particular, right? Things like the essential nature of repentance, uh, of keeping the commandments, the kinds of temptations, the three principal temptations we face, uh, basic disciplines like prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, but also, too, the, the, the capital sins that are usually our main obstacles for making any progress, like pride and avarice and gluttony. What Jesus not only says about uh, rooting those vices out, but also how to uh, grow in the opposing virtues uh, to those particular vices. So at least for me, I, a lot of it for many years was just fuzzy. I didn't have, really have a clear concept of, well, what are the seven capital sins? What, what is the rationale for the commandments? Why are they important? Yeah. How are they not just rules? Right. Uh, and then how can I live them out in my daily life through prayer and fasting and almsgiving, those basic disciplines that Jesus gives to us? Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the relationship between vices and virtues. Um, are, yeah. are, are vices the flip side of the virtues? 
Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. If you look at if you look at the, uh, the spiritual writers on this point, uh, you know, one of the things they'll frequently do is they'll not only isolate the so-called seven deadly sins that most of us have heard of, right? Pride, envy, anger, avarice, lust, gluttony, and sloth. They will also talk about, in fact, they almost always talk about them in tandem, opposing virtues, those seven opposing virtues, <laughs> humility, mercy, meekness, generosity, chastity, temperance, and diligence. And what's fascinating is that if you look at these, uh, it's, it's really clear in the writings of saints, like St. Ignatius of Loyola, for example, in his spiritual exercises, they're going to say that not only, sh- if you want to make progress, not only should you focus on rooting out those vices, but you also need to focus on growing in the opposing virtues. In other words, you don't want to just create a, an empty space in the soul or in the heart, yeah. but you actually want to exercise the opposite virtues to fill the vacuum that will be created by rooting out the vices. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, um, several of the ancient writers, like Gregory the Great, will actually point to a teaching of Jesus on this very fact. This is the so, seven evil the spirits parable? passage? Yeah, yeah the yeah. seven <laughs> evil spirits, that's right. It's right. Very, very mysterious parable of Jesus where he talks about how when an in- unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes and he finds several, seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter the, the house and they dwell there, and the state of the person is worse than it was before. Now, this is an ominous parable in many ways, but it's also very revealing, because what Jesus is doing is basically comparing the human soul to a house that you know, has some demons that are dwelling within it. Mm-hmm. And this imagery of these seven evil spirits, is going to become a basic foundation that's not only rooted in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in the passage, a passage from Proverbs chapter 26, it talks about seven abominations dwelling in the heart of a man. Uh, but then also it will be used to describe uh, as uh, the development of these seven capital sins, these particular sins that we are all inclined to, with which we all struggle, and which we have to battle against if we want to make progress in the spiritual life. And one of the reasons this is so important is, unfortunately, at least for me, growing up as a Catholic, uh, a lot of us, I think, kind of inherited the tradition of examining our consciences according to the Ten Commandments, right? Which is great. It's a wonderful practice. But at a certain point, you know, it can seem a little strange, like, you know, okay, okay, I haven't worshipped any cows today, so idolatry is off the list. Right. Uh, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't commit murder, right? Uh, you know, I haven't lied in court, born false yeah. witness. So if we examine our hearts according to the, the Ten Commandments, which is important, it can we can kind of come away thinking, I'm doing pretty okay, good. Okay, right? yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, but if we but if we go deeper and we begin to look at those seven capital sins that are talked about in the book of Proverbs and also central in the spiritual tradition, things like pride yeah. or anger or envy. Ah, oh, well now now yeah. I might not come away looking quite so good. Like I might realize that there's a lot more to root out of my heart than at first glance. And so in the book what I do is I take you through this is one of my favorite parts of it, what Jesus says about each one of those capital sins, what Jesus teaches about pride, what Jesus teaches about anger, what Jesus teaches about envy or avarice, or those often unspoken sins, right? Sloth and gluttony. A lot of people don't even realize these are sins. Yeah. I'm from yeah. South Louisiana. We do not talk about gluttony very often <laughs> in negative fashion, right? I mean, so, but, but realizing that these are vices that need to be uprooted from the, the heart, that Jesus describes the heart as a kind of a tree, that bears fruit, and, and realizing we have to cut off those 
evil branches and then help the tree to bear uh, good fruit. This is an essential part of growth in the spiritual life and of making progress. And I think one of the reasons many people often feel like they're not making any progress is because they may not be familiar with just how high the bar is that Mm -hmm. Jesus sets for the the demands of virtue that he makes on his disciples. Now, of course, it's always with the help of his grace, right? We don't do it their own power. But he does call us to imitate him, uh, not just in rooting out sin, but also growing in virtue. I think the envy, you mentioned envy earlier, uh, the, the opposing virtue to envy is mercy, and I think that was yeah. that would be one of those, huh? How, how does that? How yep. is that? Doesn't it's not immediately I mean, apparent to me how mercy is the opposing yeah, no, virtue is, of envy. This really surprised me when I was looking at the uh, when I was looking at the, the the scriptural roots of each of the capital sins, you know. Um, and I got to envy, and I found great saints like Saint Thomas Aquinas and others saying, yeah, actually, the opposing virtue to envy is mercy. And the, one of the reasons for that is you have to make sure you're clear on exactly what envy involves. So if you go back to the Old Testament, the basic definition of envy would be actually a kind of form of an irrational sadness over another person's good fortune. Huh. A key example of this is, is Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. So if you go back to the Old Testament, what does Abel do? Um, what does Cain do? He envies Abel, not because Abel has done anything against Cain whatsoever, but for just for the fact that Abel was blessed by God, that God had regard for Abel. And Cain was saddened by his brother's good fortune, like his being blessed in the eyes of God, because he was loved himself more than his neighbor. Well, St. Thomas and other saints are going to say that mercy is the opposite. Whereas envy grieves over another person's good, good fortune, mercy grieves over another person's misfortune. And whereas envy is rooted in selfish love, like to, I love my more than my neighbor, mercy is rooted in the love of neighbor. So what the, what the saints will say is that if you struggle with envy, one of the things you have to do is actually practice, intentionally practice, the virtue of showing mercy to others, others who have hurt you, others who have, may be doing uh, better than you, who may have been blessed by you in ways that you haven't been blessed, to pray for them, to rejoice in the good that God has shown them, but also to show love towards someone who has done wrong to you, right? So mm. it's, it's an interesting—it's kind of the supreme exercise of the love of neighbor, effectively. Right? Yeah, yeah. So envy is rooted in a love of self, a very profoundly disordered love of self, and so it's counteracted by showing mercy to others. Um, and of course, each one of these virtues that I'm discussing in the book, like mercy, they're going to pop up in the Beatitudes. Right. So Jesus has a beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mm-hmm. And you'll see this also, too, in Luke 6, when, when Jesus gives the famous command to love our enemies, right? Um, in that context, in Luke's, uh, in Luke's version of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, what does Jesus say? He says, love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return— and be merciful, even yeah. as your Father is yeah. merciful. So how is the Father merciful? Well, it's that He loves those, even those who don't love Him, right? He, he, he loves those who hate Him. He, he loves without expecting anything in return. He makes the rain fall on the good and the wicked alike. And so 
for Jesus then, uh, mercy, the, the, this virtue of mercy, is really an imitation of God's love for those who don't love him that we're supposed to carry out in ourselves. And if you think about it, what does an envious person do? Like, oppose that to envy. Envious person allows anger and hatred to kind of, they ruminate on it, right? They dwell on it precisely because what they bear ultimately in their hearts is not love for neighbor, but hatred of neighbor, a desire mm. to see a na- the neighbor do, uh, you know, uh, to not have good fortune, yeah. to have misfortune. Yeah. And you'll, you'll see this all over and over again in the Scriptures. But for me, it was, that was kind of a, re- a real revelation to pit those two uh, against one another, yeah. to see those as opposing, envy and mercy, as no. opposed to other, other of the, um, the verses, virtues and vices. that You might think of uh, more obviously, like the opposite of lust would be chastity, right? Sure. Or the opposite of gluttony would be temperance. This was something that was a little bit of a revelation. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, you know, being raised Catholic, you're told to say your prayers. Uh, how is that not the battle of prayer? Oh, wow, yeah, the battle of prayer. No, <laughs> well, um, it is a battle of prayer, because the reality is, um, as Abba Agathon, one of the fathers that I quote in the book, says, prayer is warfare to the last breath. <laughs> That's a quote from, from one of the early Desert Fathers. Because even vocal prayer is a battle, because our flesh rebels against the effort, right, the attentiveness uh, that it takes to focus our minds and our hearts and our bodies, not on earthly things, but on God. And so in the book, um, you'll see, I, I take you through in a chapter called The Battle of Prayer, several key passages from uh, both the Old Testament and the New that really exemplify this. But for me, the one that was the most fascinating was the story of Jacob yeah. wrestling, wrestling with, with God, God. Mm-hmm. at night. Right? Yeah, this one's fascinating. You know, the story that Jacob's alone at night, and this man appears and wrestles with him till the break of day. And, and Jacob says, you know, I'm not going to let you go unless you give me a blessing. And so the, the man he's wrestling with changes his name to Israel, saying, you've wrestled with God and with men, and you've prevailed. But then he, he wounds him, right? Yeah. He leaves yeah. him limping for the rest of his life. Well, this, this, this mysterious passage from Genesis 32 is going to go on to be a kind of paradigm, a paradigmatic example of the struggle of prayer, right? That just as Jacob uh, encounters God in the night alone, so too, when we encounter God in prayer, it isn't just uh, filled with good feelings and consolation. There's also a battle there. Yes. God himself encounters us and even can leave us, so to speak, wounded and blessed at the same time. Grant, thanks once again. Great talking with you, and wonderful job with the book, too. Uh, We recommend it. Thanks, Al. Dr. Bram Petrie, it's called Introduction to the Spiritual Life, Walking the Path of Prayer with Jesus. It's a wonderful, uh, it goes quite deep, actually.